As, as we begin this morning, I, I really, I just really want to put a very simple truth in front of you. In fact, it's in your notes, and I want to encourage you to write it down. And it, it's this. When Jesus steps into any situation, everything changes. Would you agree with that? Jesus comes into a room, everything changes. And, and here, here's the deal. Jesus has the ability to move us from despair straight to hope. There are instances all through the gospel accounts, all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all through these moments of Jesus's life where, where we see this being played out. Something happens. So, something happened that left people sick, dead, trouble, pain, worried. And then Jesus walked in. He walked right into the middle of the situation, and, and when he walked in, everything changed. The despairing circumstance was suddenly mitigated, and hope was restored. And one of the great examples of this happening is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. In verse 11, we read that Jesus was entering into a town called Nain, N-A-I-N, Nain. Nain was located about five miles south, a little bit of southeast of Nazareth. Nazareth, you know, is the place where Jesus grew up. Nain was about 15 miles from, from the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Jesus' ministry happened right around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is moving to this village, and it's kind of interesting because it's, it's, a little, it's just a little burg. A couple hundred people live there, and as Jesus is approaching the city, coming to the city gate, he, he, suddenly he's coming into contact with a funeral procession. Here's how verse 12 describes the scene. A dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Now The, the description here is important. The Bible doesn't tell us how old this son was the son who had died, but any way you slice it, this is an unbelievably tragic situation. Mothers are not supposed to bury their sons. It's supposed to be the other way around, and more sons are supposed to take care of their mothers. That was especially true in this culture. See, there was no social welfare program in the Roman Empire. If you didn't work, you didn't get eat. If there was, if if there wasn't somebody to take care of you, then you were just in, you, you were done. You were on the streets. So here's a woman, a widow. Her husband's gone, and now the son who's supposed to take care of her is gone. In other words, she is in a horrible predicament. And I'm sure her tears of pain are running at the loss of her husband and son, but also running for herself about what in the world am I going to do? And I, I love the words that are recorded in, in verse 13. It, it, it simply says this, when the Lord, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Compassion. I mean, compassion is just pouring out of the heart of Jesus. He, he saw the situation and I mean, he immediately, he immediately sizes it up. The, the pain, the stress that this woman has had heaped upon her shoulders. And, and, and literally, it drives Jesus to action. And can you just see Jesus stopping the funeral procession? 
Do you see him walking to the woman and reaching out and touching her? Can you, can, you, can you see maybe just that reassuring smile that maybe came over his face? It's all right. It's going to be okay. And then can you see him turning to the coffin? Can you see him reaching out and touching the box? Which, by the way, again, for any Jew, this would, this would have been a, a big deal. Because when you come in contact with a dead body, touching that box would have made him ceremonially unclean. And no Jew with an inherent need, without an inherent need to do so, would have ever come in contact with a dead body. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 says that you would be unclean for seven days. And at the end of seven days, you'd have to go through a whole ritualistic purification, which meant sacrifices and other things. Jews would have run from the situation if they had been able to. Not Jesus. Actually walks into the situation and puts himself right in the middle of it. And then he said eight simple words that completely flipped the, dead, the dreadful situation completely on its ear. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. I mean, immediately. It's not like, you know, a day later. or It's, it's not like, I mean, it's, a, it's immediately. Immediately, the, the, this dead young man is sitting up. <laughs> that, that might be just a, a little bit to freak out, don't you think? But as all of this is happening, suddenly what you got to understand is the funeral's over, and now we're moving from a funeral to a party. The party is getting ready to begin. Now, you, you talk about a metamorphosis. It's what Jesus does. He delivers hope. He walks into hopeless situations and delivers what everybody wants and what everybody needs. And honestly, friends, listen. It's what God wants to do for you. It's where Paul is turning right here in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 1, he opens the book, and he's describing the blessings that have poured out to the followers of Jesus, to the people who are in the family of God. They're chosen. You, you've been chosen. You've been predestined. You've been redeemed. For, for, for thousands of years, people have wondered about this mystery that was coming. The mystery has been revealed. It's not a secret anymore. Here it is. Jesus died for us so that you could be clean. And, and then, not only that, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And God has adopted you into his family, written your name into his book. Every one of those blessings have been provided. And let me tell you, friends, they're provided today. They're for you today. And that led Paul to pray. The end of chapter 1, verses 15 down, he thanked God that the Ephesian Christians got it, that they were living out their calling to faithfully follow, follow Jesus, and, the, and that they were, they, were, they were living out love to all the people that were around them. And then he interceded, asking that God would help them to know, know all that was in their hands. That God would help them to know him, know God. That they would know the hope that they had, the, the promise of heaven. And that, the, and that they, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt the power, the Holy Spirit that was literally at work within them. The power that brought Jesus back from the dead. The prayer of Paul was that you would know that you are sealed up in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the problem right here is that's where a whole lot of people stop. 
blessings pour, and as the blessings are pouring out, the prayer is happening, and a lot of people are looking in the mirror, and, they're, and, they're, they're, and they're, they're, honestly, their answer is, not me. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of any of this. You hear that God, you hear all that God has already done for you, and you step back. You stop in your tracks. God would never do that for me. My life is a mess. I'm too far gone. That might be true for somebody else, but it can't be true for me. The truth, friends, is that we all carry a weight of guilt from our past. And if you, if you even now sense that coming down upon your shoulders, you are not alone. There's not anybody here that doesn't have all that regret and all of that stuff in their back, in their background. And, 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 and we, get, we get caught right here. We get tripped up. We know who we are. We know where we've been. We know what we've done. Jesus could love a good person, but I'm far from a good person. Could Jesus ever love me? The answer is probably no. And it's right here that Paul focuses his attention. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, he preaches a short little 10-verse sermon. It's an evangelistic message that is powerful in its statement. And, and really, friends, it's words that you ought to read over and over and over. Again, it's three simple points. I want you to write them down. Ready? And the first one's this. The horrible reality of the situation. The horrible reality of every person who, is, who has ever lived. ever lived. Here it is. Ready? You were dead. I was dead. Would you say that with me? I was dead. Come on, say it again. I was dead. Turn to the person next to you. Point at him. Say, he's talking to you. You were dead. Go ahead. Tell him. You were dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is how Paul opens up. We've, we've all seen, we've all felt the effects of death. We've all watched the life-altering drama that takes place when someone breathes their last and they're gone. And Paul uses that picture to body slam us into reality. That person in the coffin, that was you. You were dead. So why does Paul start this evangelistic message in chapter 2 this way? Well, I'll tell you why. Because before you can truly understand the amazing grace and love that has been poured out to you, you have to start with this, with this idea that you were in desperate condition. You got to get really lost before you can get really saved. So Paul just lays it out. You were dead. And it leads to several things that Paul puts out in the first three verses of chapter two. Now, the, the first thing that I want you to hear here, friends, is that the Bible uses the word spiritual death to describe three different human consequences of sin. And the word consequence is important here. Nobody likes to think that they're responsible for the sad state of affairs in their life. I mean, the, the truth is, as humans, we are really good at blaming other people. Why, why am I in this place? Why am I in this con condition? Because of you. You did this to me. You, you, I'm suffering because of all the things that you did. It's all your fault. The, and the inclination to blame other people begins at a really early age. If you, if you have multiple kids in your family, you've watched it happen. My, my kids were not very old when they started passing the buck. 
So, I mean, a conversation in our house 30 years ago sounded maybe something like this. Gabriel, why did you hit your brother? Why did you hit Gregory? And, and, and right here, there's a, there's a point for Gabriel to say, I lost control. I, you know, I, 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 I was thinking in the wrong way. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. That's not typically what would happen. What, 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 what Gabriel would say was something like, he took my toy. Why did you do this? What, what Gabriel was saying was it's all his fault. He did it. He got what he deserved because he did this. I'm not at fault. He's at fault. And the older we get, the more adept we become at passing the buck. Most human beings are masters at pushing off responsibility. The truth is that we're all personally responsible for the consequence of death in our lives. Look at Ephesians 2. And make sure you notice the emphasis. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Paul lays out the responsibility and he puts it right on your shoulders. Why am I spiritually dead? It's a consequence of my action. I did this to myself. I chose to walk this path. I chose to walk far from God. I I chose to turn down this road. I am responsible. And the fact is that the consequence of death plays out in your life in three very distinct places. And you need to know them. First, there's physical death. The first consequence of sin and transgression in our lives is physical death. And it's laid out in the opening pages of Scripture back in Genesis chapter 3. God created Adam and Eve, and he laid out the rules of the garden. And there was only one. Don't eat of the tree. The day you eat of the tree is the day you're going to die. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. God, God just says it plainly. You can eat of every other tree in the garden, but of that tree, stay away from it. You choose not to do that, you will surely die. God, God created man and woman for a relationship with him. But if relationship is going to happen, there has to be a choice. So God gave Adam and Eve free will. He gives you free will for that same purpose. You have to choose. God's already made his declaration. What God wants is for you to choose to be in that relationship. So God put the tree in the garden with the rule so that there would be a choice. Now think about that. Man was created not to die, but to live to live forever. And the ability to stand in that blessing of life was in Adam and Eve's hands. God declared his choice, and the choice to turn from God came with a consequence. If you choose not to be where where you need to be, death. Sadly, Adam and Eve made the wrong choice. And as a result, physical death was introduced to the world. Now, a whole lot of people right here may say, cry foul. They may say, it's not fair. I'm being punished for their sin. But the reality is that's not true. Is there anybody here who hasn't sinned? I mean, we're all guilty. Romans 3.23 makes it really clear. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. We're all down this wrong road. We've all chosen... In the beginning, the die was cast by Adam and Eve. In the end, you ratified their decision by moving your hand to things that you shouldn't have touched. 
and your choice brought the consequence of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the story. Physical death of our bodies is really only the first consequence of sin and transgression. There's, there's, there's two other deaths, and the second one would be eternal death. Sad truth of, about death is that it continues right through this life, right out of this life, right into the next one. Sin separates us from God, and people who die in a sinful state spend eternity separated from God in a horrible, horrible place called hell. The Bible has a lot to say about this place, and we could spend a lot of time talking about it. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 calls it the second death. Revelation 21, 8 says it's a, it's a fiery lake burning with sulfur. Matthew 15, 13, 50 says it's a blazing furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 21, 8 goes on to say it's burning with sulfur. Mark 9, 43 says the fire never goes out. In other words, there's zero relief. Matthew 25, verse 46 says it's eternal. But it's a place of torment and pain, horrible torment and pain. But, but probably the most troubling aspect of hell is laid out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says they will be punished with everlasting, everlasting, again, eternal destruction, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And I'm just telling you, friends, by far, this, this, is, this is the most horrifying consequence about hell. It's that God is not present. A whole lot of people might say at this juncture, well, we're used to that. We live on earth. God's not present here. And my response would be, are you kidding me? God is present. Did you wake up this morning? Did you look around? Did you hear the birds? Did you see the trees? Did you feel the wind running through, through the leaves of the trees? Did you just look at the creation? I mean, the, the ability to look at something and see it, that God is, God is present on this earth. But hell will be very different. Hell is a place where God is absent. You take away every good thing about this place, every good thing about this creation, you remove it, and that's hell. And if that's not enough, there's a third kind of death that people suffer through. Physical death, eternal death, and then there's a walking death. That, that would be death in this present life. There are people all around us who are literally walking dead. They're like zombies. You know any of them? They're far from God, far from his purpose, far from his will, and it leads to emptiness. Solomon spoke loudly about this phenomenon in the book of Ecclesiastes. This son of King David, the, the king who had a heart that was after God's own heart, ascended to the throne after, after David had died. And Solomon was amazing for the first several years of his reign as he built the temple and as he, as he led people to God. But along the line, his heart turned. And when it turned and he put his eyes on other things, he started walking away from God. And, and very quickly, his life became Outside of God, he says in the book of Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless, empty, 
void. And he's walking through it like he's dead. No value, no joy, no peace, no purpose. Friends, our, our, our world today is filled, I mean filled, with these kinds of people. Searching, ever searching, ever ever looking for the, the right relationship, for the right job, the right hobby, the right thing that is going to bring fulfillment to their lives. Let me have some meaning. Let me have some purpose. But outside of God, true fulfillment, it truly, honestly, doesn't exist. Thankfully, Solomon, at the end of his life, got it. The end of this book where he says, meaningless, 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 meaningless. At the very end of this book, chapter 12, he's, he's, he's writing. Here's what, here's what he says. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. How do you make life meaningful? How do you live a life that has purpose? How do you live a life that where you're not walking dead? Here's what he says. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. You, you want your life to be meaningful? God is the only path to meaning. God is the only path to non-death. And I want you to remember, friends, how this passage started. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. Every person who's ever lived has been there. Paul is pointing at you, which brings us to the big question. What's the process? How did, how did we get there? And while I've already given the answer to that question, we sinned, we, we were involved with sin and transgression, I, I want you to look right into the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, because Paul is at a process in the book right here, in these first couple of verses, that takes people down the road. And what I want you to see is that it's easy. It's an easy process. It, it, didn't, it didn't begin with you taking a boat out into the middle of the ocean and jumping off into the depths of the sea. No, that... that, 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 that that's not how it starts. It starts with you just taking a step back at the shore where you just kind of wade in. You, 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 you wade into your ankles and wade into your hips, and pretty soon you're kind of there floating, and, and before you know it, you're being carried off far from shore, way over your heads. Now don't, get me, don't get the wrong impression here. The, the, the minute you waded in, the minute you, were, the minute you put your toe in the water, you were dead but it probably didn't feel that way. And that's part of the problem. Put your toe in and it sort of kind of felt good. Sort of kind of felt cool. Sort of fine. Like, this is going to be all right. And before you knew it, the hook was in and, and out you went. And it brought destruction. So Paul describes the process. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you chose to walk in transgression and sin. The walk of death begins with a personal choice to violate God's commands. Now, these two words, transgression and sins, they're probably synonyms. They're saying the same thing. People who transgress and sin are people who look at God and say, no. You told me to do this? No. I got a, I got a better idea. I'm going to do what I want to do. And over time, that developed into a mindset. And that's the second step. You followed the ways of the world. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. Death begins with a step, but eventually it develops into a philosophical decision to live that way. First, you stick your toe in and kind of try it out. Now you're saying, I'm in. 
going to walk this way. And I'm just telling you, friends, that we see this blatantly being carried out all around us today. I am my own boss. Who do you think you are to tell me anything? I know better. The philosophy of today is a full-blown thumbing of our noses at God, telling him, deal with it. You made me a free will being fine. Here's what I choose to do. Now, the, the world is in a mass meltdown. We're forsaking long-held Judeo-Christian values, believing that we are smarter than any God and that we know better for ourselves about how we're going to be made happy. We've bought, the, we've, we've bought into this whole thing. We've, we've allowed truth to become a lie and lie to become a truth. And I, I'm just telling, telling you it scares me because I see it creeping into the church with people who are saying, you know, well, new, new day, new age. It's, it's, maybe, it's, maybe, it's maybe okay. Let's just stick our toe in. Before long, it's a mindset. It's a mindset. We're following the ways of the world. And friends, that philosophy of the, of, of the world leads straight to the next step in the process. And that's literally bowing down to the ruler. Paul says the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. When we decided to follow the ways of the world, what we were really doing is bowing to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and that is one person. That's, that's Satan. You should never underestimate his power and his authority. He's not more powerful than God, and the truth is when the Holy Spirit's living inside of you, he's not more powerful than that either. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, 4 says, the one who's in you is greater than the one that is in the world. Now, understand that you are not greater than, than the enemy, but the Holy Spirit surely is. In the name of Jesus, the enemy has no authority and no power. And the truth is he has no authority and power to do anything, to, to make you do anything. What he has authority and power to do is to try to lure you and draw you away. And when we decide to follow the ways of the world, what we are doing is bowing to his authority. We've replaced God on the throne of our lives and we've put the enemy on the throne. And really, this is really what life is simply all about. Who will, who will occupy the seat of authority? Will it be God or will it be Satan? And, and here's the simple truth. Any, anything but God sitting on the throne of your life is going to take you to death. If you've chosen to follow anything but God and his word, then you're bowing to the enemy. You've dug your own grave. You're dead. It leads to the to the fourth step in the process. Where Paul says in verse 3 that you are gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature. You get to a point where you used to know it's wrong and you don't even care anymore. It's what I feel, it's what I think, it's what I want. I'm running at it. And it's really the end of the line. Your heart lives to gratify what you yourself define as best. Whatever it is I'm lusting after today, that's what I'm going to run after. It's the teaching of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Satan uses the lust of your heart to lure you away. Again, he has no authority to make you grab a hold, but he's putting the lure out in front of you, and has a big old, it has a big old mama hook on it. And the moment you reach out and take a hold, he snags you. And he's, he's drawing you away. He's reeling you in. 
tells you that every lust you feel like gratifying is really a good thing. He cons you into believing that it will bring you fulfillment, and it's all a lie, and you know it. And yet we grab a hold, and the march to death has begun. So there are three ways that we die. We die physically. We die internally. We die just to everyday life. There's a process to get there. And friends, it all sets up a tragic result. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we literally become objects of wrath. When you follow the ways of this world and you bow to the enemy, what, what happens is you actually become an enemy of God. There's no middle ground here. You're either for God or you're against him. And when you are against him, you incur his wrath. The Lord's a righteous judge. And he will give you not only what you deserve, he will give you what you want. He will let you go. And I'm telling you, friends, it grieves God, but he will not abide your sinfulness. He can't. His righteous character will not allow that. And so wrath pours. Now listen, friends, the world's a mess. And it will always be a mess while it's living in hostility to God. There's no, there's no other way. The sad reality is that Paul makes clear the point that every one of us chose to live in that condition. We are all dead. And for many, they believe that's the end of the story. But here's what I want to say to you. That's hardly the end of the story. Because it leads straight to the second point of Paul's amazing 10-verse sermon right here at the beginning of chapter 2. And, and what happens here is an, an amazing intervention. Because while you were dead, what has happened is Jesus came into the room, and when he came into the room, everything changed, and because of him, you have been made alive in Christ. I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It starts with this little word, but. All the bad news, all the bad news, all the bad news. You've got to get really, really, really down the road of bad news so that you can understand the amazing grace, the amazing love, the amazing mercy of Jesus. Yeah, all this is true. You were an object of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, come on. Come on, church. That's a reason to say amen and hallelujah. Don't you think? Come on now. Just when it appeared that things were lost and beyond hope, God rode onto the scene. Literally like, like the conquering hero, he came flying in and he offered a way to resurrect you out of the grave and make you right and bring you straight back to life. So how does it work? Paul lays out the simple outline right here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, God who is rich in mercy. I was in Bible college all those years ago in Joplin, Missouri. I had a professor 
who on a pretty regular, regular basis spoke very loudly and boldly that he was looking forward to judgment day. He was looking forward to the day when God gave it to all the people who deserved it. When finally evil would be knocked down and God would win and all these people would go to hell. And he would almost like, he would almost like spring up a joy as he would tell the story. And I'm just telling you, every time I heard that, which was on a regular basis, there was something inside of me that was just kind of pushing back because it just didn't sound right to me. It didn't sound good. It didn't sit well. It bothered me. And I'm telling you, friends, it should bother you too because the heart of God is not wrath. The heart of God is mercy. This was Jesus when he walked into the city gate of Nain. He could have seen this funeral procession. He could have stopped the whole thing, pointed a condemning finger and said, you see what's going on here? Y'all deserve it. He died. He's on his way to hell. Y'all are a walking death. This is all how it's going to end up because you're miserable wretches. But that's not what you see Jesus doing. His heart is merciful. It's filled with compassion. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus is crying out over the spiritual condition of the city of Jerusalem. And more pointedly, he's grieving for the dead hearts of the spiritual leaders of all of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of the people, the Sanhedrin. He is crying out. He says, he says in verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not, you're not willing. I, I wanted to protect you. I wanted to bring you in. I wanted to make you okay. I want, you wouldn't let me. And friends, I, I want to make sure when you hear these words, you understand the context of where they're flowing. Jesus has just preached a scathing sermon to the religious leaders. The religious leaders of Judaism in Matthew 23, he called them hypocrites, sons of hell, blind guides, whitewashed tombs. Read chapter 23 and read, read through. He's just laying out the truth of who these guys are and what their hearts are all about. Their lives were treacherous and they were far from God. And, and God would deal with them in, in the age to come with wrath. God had worked diligently to warn them, to call them back. Through the Old Testament, all these prophets had come, and finally the Son, Jesus himself, had been sent. And these, their response was to reject it all. We know better. We got it figured out. We're sitting on our own throne. In reality, they were bowing to the enemy, and they, were, and they had him on the throne. They were walking dead. They would soon physically die, and then it would be an eternity of horror where they, would, where they would weep and gnash their teeth in a place where God didn't even exist. And it broke Jesus' heart. Matthew 23 is this message where Jesus is trying to shape these guys into reality, and they won't listen. And now he's crying out, here's what I want to do. It's mercy, not wrath. But you wouldn't let it happen. Listen, friends, God finds no joy in wrath. His heart breaks for every lost person, and if people are going to hell, they're going to have to climb right over Jesus to get there. And the truth is, his heart broke for you. And it drove God to come up with a plan. 
this God who is rich in mercy came up with a plan. The plan is called grace. Two times in this passage, two times, Paul speaks of the grace of God and how we are saved. Verse 4 and verse 8. Verse, verse 8 says, for, in fact, let's, let's read this together. Verse 8 says, for it is, come on, let's read it together. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of the gift of God who takes people from death and moves them to life. The word here in Greek is charis. Charis. Grace. Charis. It literally means gift. And the gift was an opportunity to be resurrected from the dead. Don't think for a second that this gift was not without cost. God, God could not just say, sins are forgiven and wiped out. No, there was a debt. It had to be paid. Somebody had to pay it off. The debt was so great that even if I could live to be 7 million years old, I, I didn't have enough time to, to pay it off. That, that's why the punishment for this is eternity in hell. God, God understood that if there was going to be a debt payer, a substitute, it would have to be him. And that's God's plan. He decided to pay the debt himself. He came. He lived a perfect life. He didn't sin. He didn't transgress. And then he gave his life for you. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. The gift of God is the gift of Jesus. I, I can enjoy the blessings of God because Jesus paid the way. And what I want you to know, friends, is this was God's plan before the beginning. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 3, the second Adam and Eve had transgressed and eaten of that fruit, God was already announcing the coming of this one, the coming of the one who would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15, before the creation of the world, before you were even thought about, God already had a plan about how it was going to work. It's his gift for you. And his encouragement is, choose to accept it. So why did God do it? And that's the third point here. It's all driven by love. God has a heart of mercy. For his mercy to be unveiled, there had to be a plan. The plan was grace. Why would God pay such a, such a sacrifice? Love. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. There they are, the three words right together. Mercy, grace, love. Godly love is a commitment. It's not a feeling. If God had been motivated by only feeling, he would have never gone to the cross. Godly love is a giving love. It's, it's, it's a love that says, I'm committed to give to you for your benefit. I, I will sacrifice myself to lift you up. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. 
And the price was unbelievable. Love caused God to give. You're the beneficiary. And leads to the fourth thought here. The truth you need to grab onto. And that's this. That this is the only way to be saved from your sinful condition. When you read the Bible, you, you quickly come to the conclusion that there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to go from death to life. There, there was nothing I could do to right the ship. It's not as a result of works. I have nothing to boast about. I, I, I didn't do this. For me to be resurrected from the grave, for me to be not walking dead, for me to have a hope of eternity is, is built and hangs on nothing that I could do about it. What can a dead person do? Works are mood for salvation. I'm going to try to be good enough. You can't be good enough. Being good enough means being perfect. And I blew that 50 years ago. So God stepped out. He sent Jesus. Price paid. Gap bridged. He's the only way to God. Listen, all the other, you think about it, all the other religions of the world are teaching you to be good enough. How do I, how, how does salvation come? I'm good. I earn it. I do this. I give that. I, you know, I, I develop into a person of character. And every time I do something good, it's, it's paying something off. No, no, no. That's not how it works. The second, the second you put your toe in, gone. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to undo that. That was deserving of an eternity in hell. So Jesus came. He's the only one. It's the only, it's the, Christianity is the only religious system in the world where God came and God did the work so that you could be saved. You want salvation? You want to be back with God? Jesus is the way. And it leads to a response. And it's really a simple response to all of this story that Paul is laying out, to all of this message. Our response should be faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, last week we talked about faith. Faith is an assent. It's a coming to an understanding that something is true. I ascend to that truth. I, I accept the truth. And then... And then I follow it. I obey it. I trust it. I ascend to it. I say it's true. And, and now I'm taking a step to say, it applies to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey it. I heard someone one time define faith like this. F-A-I-T-H. Write, write it down. F-A-I-T-H. And, and it, it stands for forsaking all, I take him. Forsaking all, I take him. I take all, I take my life and I put it in the basket of Jesus, all my eggs in one basket. I'm putting all of my life into his hands. I'm trusting him. God did the work, he paid the debt. I need to reach out and accept it. And, and, the, and the way that I do that is I accept Jesus. 
You completely lean into Jesus. You understand it's not a result of works. I have nothing to boast about. Jesus did it. The only thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put my, my life into his hands. You want out of the grave? This is the process. He is the only way. And it leads to the third point of Paul's message. I was dead. I've been made alive. And because of that, number three, I now have a new focus. And my new focus is simply this. I will live for Jesus. Paul ends this section by saying, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when you come to grips with everything that Jesus has done for you, when you come to the conclusion that you understand how dead you were and how far away you were and what you really deserved, and you understand that the only way there's a chance of you being out of the grave, and that's through Jesus, through mercy and through grace and through love. It was all poured out by God. Nothing that you could do to earn it. And God gave it willingly just for you. The response should be, here I am. Have me. Take me. Mark chapter 5, Jesus got out of a boat in the region of the Gerasenes. He stepped onto the shore, and about the second that he stepped onto the shore, there was a crazy man running down the beach. The guy's screaming at the top of his lungs. It's a pretty spectacular moment because the guy's naked. He's the first streaker, you know what I mean? And he's running down the beach screaming like a raving maniac. And he is a raving maniac because we learn that he is demon-possessed. And when Jesus stops the guy and he, he gets him down, he, he's speaking out to the demon. He says, what's your name? And the demon speaks out. He says, we're legion, for we are many. This guy is inhabited by like a thousand demons. And he's wildly crazy. So crazy that the people of the town have have taken him out to the graveyard. That's his, that's his home. And they've got him chained to the tomb, to the, to the tombstones out there. They don't want this guy in town. He's all crazy, crazy Charlie. And everybody runs from this guy. But he's so powerful with the demons that, that he just breaks the chains and he's running everywhere. He's out of control. And now he's running down the beach. And, and when he sees Jesus, here's the question. Are you going to torment me too? His, his heart is not wrath. His heart is mercy. I mean, that quickly. <laughs> out. The demons come flying out of the sky. They run into a, into a herd of pigs that literally run down the shore right into the sea and they drown. I've always got a kick out of the story because don't you think it's funny that a bunch of Jewish people were raising pigs? Don't you think it's funny? So Jesus is just taking care of a couple of things right here, right at the same time. Pigs dead, demons gone. And now for the first time, when the town people come out, what they see is their pig's gone. And they see crazy Charlie, not so crazy anymore. In fact, what Mark says is that he is clothed. He's seated. And he's in his right mind. From death to life. When Jesus comes into the scene, everything changes. What are the people of the town concerned about? Not the man. They're ticked about the pigs. And they drive Jesus away. Get lost. And this, this, this guy says, can I go with you? I don't want to stay here. These people hate me. And Jesus says in verse 9, I love this. 
Jesus is getting in the boat. Jesus says, no, you can't go home. You need to go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he left. The question is, did this guy do what he was asked to do? And the answer is, yes. Because if you just go two chapters further in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 31, Several months later, and Jesus is swinging back into the Decapolis, the region of the Gerasenes. And this time when he's getting off the boat, suddenly people are bringing sick people to him. Several months later, he's run out because of the dead pigs. When he comes back, people are bringing sick people to him. How did they know to do that? And the answer is, a formerly crazy guy that was been made right, had a testimony and a message to give. And the message is we have life in Jesus' name. Some friends, when you understand how dead you were, when you understand the levels that God was willing to go through to bring you back and resurrect you from that grave, the response is only one, to tell somebody speak about it. Life is really this simple. It's a choice. Life or death. And it's all dependent upon who will sit on the throne. At the end of the day, all of us have chosen that the enemy will be there and we have bowed to him. And because of that, we were dead. And God, who is rich in mercy, gave us a Savior. That Savior has a name. His name is Grace Poured because a heart of love gave it to him. And it's for you to take the name. Accept the grace. Step out in faith. And then go and tell somebody. I was dead, and now I'm alive. Would you bow your heads? Father, it's an amazingly simple story. It's true for every person sitting here today, and Father, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at your love. We marvel at your mercy. Father, I pray that you give all of us right now a moment of clarity to see the truth, to see the dividing line, and to make a choice. Death or life. And Father, I pray that as we are making that really simple choice. You will help us to be ever grateful for all that you've done and that we would be ever willing to go and speak the truth. Father, help us to that end. And it's our prayer in Jesus' name. And God's people said,